It's not quite Christmas yet, but I pray that you will indulge me for just a moment as I read uh, just a few paragraphs from uh, my favorite uh, Christmas story. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, the chief mourner, and Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind you, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in this simile, and my own unhallowed hands shall not change it or the country's done for. You will, therefore, permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he had been partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assigned, his sole residual legatee, his sole friend, and his sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so cut up dreadfully by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point that I started with. There is no doubt that Jacob Marley was dead. Now listen carefully. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from the story I am about to relate. Such are the first uh, three paragraphs of Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol. And I don't know if you noticed there, but at least five times uh, in those first three paragraphs, Dickens says over and over again, Marley was dead, Marley was dead, Jacob Marley was dead. He was dead as a doornail. And Dickens wants us to understand that up front. It's what we might call um, a literary presupposition, something we need to know and have implanted firmly in our minds. Or, point number two from the first three paragraphs, Nothing wonderful can happen from the story he's about to relate. Nothing wonderful. Think about that. You know, most authors, in my experience, are content uh, if they're able to occupy their readers, uh, amuse their readers, entertain their readers, maybe. But how many authors come right out at the beginning and say they want something wonderful to happen in the lives of their readers? Wow. Pretty lofty goal, isn't it? Well, you know what? If that can be true of a secular writer, and Dickens is among the greatest of the great, if that can be true that he wants something great to happen in our lives, then how do you suppose the ultimate author of the book, the Bible, the ultimate author God, how do you think he feels about, or what do you think he wants to have happen in the lives of his readers? I think he would say he wants something wonderful to happen in your life and in mine. And so just as Dickens wants to set these two things forward, number one, that Jacob Marley was dead, and number two, that he wants something wonderful to happen 
in the lives of his readers in a similar way. I think the Gospel of John, and John specifically, the writer of that Gospel, wants us to understand two things. Number one, he wants us to understand that Jesus Christ was dead. Notice I said was dead. And secondly, he wants something wonderful to happen in the lives of his readers. I'd like to turn your attention for just a moment to John chapter 19. I'm just going to read uh, from the NIV, John 19, verses 28 through 30. The very last words that our Lord spoke on this planet during his earthly life. Beginning, wow, this print is small. (laughs) I should have brought my glasses. Beginning again in verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. As a matter of fact, your NIV might actually say in verse 28, later, knowing that all was now finished. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stake of hyssop, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. You know, those three words in our English Bible are the translation of a single word in the original language of the New Testament. It's the word tetelestai. And in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, tetelestai, uh, it is finished, is a very good translation. That's what it meant, finished. It would be used, for example, uh, if an artist were painting. And, and maybe they had worked on this particular uh, painting for months, maybe even years. And it finally comes to the day where they put that final brush stroke on and they step back and look at it and say, Tetelestai. It's finished. It was also used uh, in the financial realm. If you, uh, if you borrowed money or, uh, or you borrowed livestock or you borrowed uh, crops, uh, if it was a large enough transaction, in, so, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, a legal document would be prepared, kind of like we would today. And when you made the last payment, uh, either on that money or that livestock or those, or those crops, it would be stamped with this word, tetelestai, finished. Uh, I was born and raised on the, Jersey, on the coast of Jersey, um, the Jersey Shore, as we refer to it, and uh, kind of grew up working on fishing boats and uh, had my own charter boat for a while. And uh, have kind of, as I've gotten older, gravitated more toward the mountains from the coast. But I grew up in this little seashore community, and my parents uh, bought the house literally when I was just a couple months old in 1954. And they added on to it in uh, 1959 or 60, and then a larger addition in 1965. But I'll never forget, uh, in the mid-1980s, I think around 1984 or 85, because I, I guess they had a 30-year mortgage like everybody did in those days, uh, they were having this little celebration because they were paying off their mortgage. 
And I'll never forget my dad and mom coming back, and we had this little get-together, and uh, I said, finally paid it off, huh, Dad? He goes, yeah, finally paid it off. You know, it's done with it. That's it. And I said, well, uh, what'd they give you? He said, well, they just gave me this. I said, what's it say, paid in full? He said, no, look, it's kind of weird. And he showed it to me. Guess what it said on the front of it? Well, not Greek. Not Greek, but your class, right. The English translation, it said simply, finished. Finished. And I think that's really significant. It shows in our day and age that we still understand what that means. It means paid in full, done, kaput, finished. But what is it exactly that's finished? What's finished? Well, I'm going to ask you, just to make sure you're not falling asleep on me yet, to take out your worship folder here. And there's a verse printed in there. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. And Hebrews 9 and verse 26 in the NIV. I want to, I, Okay, if we read this out loud together? Okay, here we go. You ready? But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Just like we use that term today. You ever hear somebody say, you know what, I'm finished with this once and for all. Same thing. Jesus Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, to finish sin by the sacrifice of Himself. You know, if you'll allow me to take that illustration I used about my parents' mortgage, allow me to take that a step forward. Every single one of us, every person in this room was born with a moral mortgage on our lives, if I could put it that way. Every single one of us is born with a moral mortgage on our lives, a sin debt. And, and that sin debt, what did, what did you do to incur that sin debt? Well, all you had to do was be born because we all... Uh, are, are given, are transmitted with the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. But then, not only are we born sinners with a moral mortgage on our lives, we continue to sin by our own choice and our own volition, don't we, as we go, as we go throughout our lives. So we add to that moral mortgage. The balance becomes greater and greater. No matter how good we try to be, no matter how good we actually are, our moral mortgage continues, the balance continues to increase no matter how many payments we think we're making. And so we're in sort of a hopeless situation. But Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 is really, really good news because it says that Jesus Christ has come once at the end of the ages to put away sin, to finish sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The way we used to say it in our little church plan on the Jersey coast was, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, He did everything that God requires for me to go to heaven when I die. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope you do. That's really good news. Not because I'm the one who gets to say it this morning, but that is really, really good news. Our sin debt is finished. It's paid in full. And because it's paid in full, we have a real simple outline here this morning. Because it's paid in full, there, are, there is no need for, I'm picking out three things, okay? The perfect sermon always has three points, doesn't it? <laughs> First, number one, there's no need for sacrificial offerings. 
What did they do in the Old Testament to try to atone for their sins? They would sacrifice bulls and goats and, uh, if you were poor, uh, doves. But the writer of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, but rather these sacrifices were a reminder of sin. And we would, they would sacrifice lambs as well, right? But even the sacrifice of those lambs was simply a reminder of sin until, until the perfect Lamb of God, as we just sung, until the perfect Lamb of God came and took away our sin once and for all, finished our sin. And when He did, and because He did, the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us, there, therefore there's no need for the offering of bulls and goats because this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, has taken away, has finished our sin debt once and for all by the sacrifice of Himself. So there's, number one, no need for sacrificial offering. Number two, there's no need, and boy, do I have to be careful now, there's no need for good works. Pastor Jim was kind enough to give me the opportunity to preach. Uh, And if I ever hope to get a second invitation, I think I better clarify myself here. (laughs) Listen. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, as members of God's forever family, are we supposed to live a lifestyle of good works and good deeds? Yeah, absolutely. I would even say we're not only are we supposed to, I would say we are obligated to. We are commanded to live a life of good works, a life of good deeds, a life that demonstrates Christ living in us so that the world can see that. But in a very, very real sense, in terms of our acceptance before God, in terms of our justification, in terms of becoming members of God's forever family, there is no need now for any good works. Why? Because Jesus Christ has paid it all. Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross has paid my sin debt in full. Listen to three verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now to him who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a debt. But to him who does not work but believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And even to this day, there is a remnant being saved according to the election of grace. But if it is by grace, then it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Romans chapter 11 Verses 5 and 6. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? There's still a remnant of people being saved even to this present day. But they're being saved by grace. And if it's by grace, it can't be of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And what he's saying is if, if it were possible, and this is strictly uh, metaphorical, but if it were possible to take a 10-ounce glass of God's pure, amazing grace... And then just take an eyedropper of works and just put one drop 
of works in that 10-ounce glass of God's amazing grace. Guess what? It's no longer amazing grace. Grace is just that. It is God's pure, unmerited, undeserved favor. And therefore, therefore, there's no need for sacrificial offerings. There's no need for good works. There's no need to try to work your way to heaven. It's all been paid in full. So do we do good works? Yeah, but hopefully we're doing them out of an overflow of gratitude for what Jesus has done in my life. You know, if somebody, if you're in debtor's prison and you have no way out and somebody comes and pays your debt and, and sets you free forever, you're going to want to spit in their eye as you leave jail or, you, or have you just made your best friend for life? I hope you've just made your best friend for life. If you don't, you don't understand grace. Something's wrong. No need for sacrificial offering. No need for good works. And thirdly, no need for uncertainty about the future. You know, I'm, I'm amazed how many Christians struggle with assurance of salvation. Can I just tell you, honestly, God does not want you to be in question about something as critically important as your eternal destiny. He wants you to know it for certain. He wants you to know it beyond any shadow of a doubt. That's why John says in 1 John, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may think you have eternal life. Is that what it says? No. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you have everlasting life. And I want to read another verse to you real quick um, from the book of Romans. I'm going the wrong way. Romans, again, it's Romans chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there quick with me. And if I can see it, I'll read it to you. Romans chapter 4. And I'm looking about the middle of the page. I think that says verse, it's around verse 16 or so. Okay. It talks about Abraham. Abraham, uh, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. Do you see that? Now drop down to the therefore. Therefore, the promise, and that means the promise of eternal life or everlasting life. Therefore, the promise comes by faith that it may be by grace and may be what? What's it say, guys? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. To all of Abraham's offspring. See what he's saying? That one of the reasons, one of the reasons, not the main reason I, I don't think theologically, but one of the reasons that God has made our justification, our salvation, by grace, a free grace gift, is so that the offer is absolutely guaranteed to everyone who believes, to all of Abraham's offspring. You see, if you and I, if, if getting into heaven was 99% God's grace and 1% our good works, our performance, our behavior, we could never be absolutely sure of our eternal life or, or of our eternal destiny. But we can be. Why? Because the scripture says God did it uh, by grace, through faith, so that the promise would be absolutely guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. 
One good friend of mine, actually my mentor, the finest preacher I've ever heard, he used to say it this way, getting into heaven has absolutely nothing to do with what you do, but it has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And listen, if Satan starts to mess with your mind, as he does with all of us at some time or another, you've probably heard this before, but I think it's worth saying again. If Satan starts reminding you about your past, you remind him of his future. And if you start to doubt the promise of God, if you start to think maybe it does depend a little bit, my performance, my behavior, how well I'm doing, geez, I did this the other day, or this old word slipped out of my mouth, and you start to doubt whether you're really Christian, you know where you look? Don't look within. Guys, I've been a Christian, as you'll hear in just a second, since 1980, and the longer I'm a Christian, when I look within, I don't get assured. I get concerned because I know my own heart over time. And there's some really dark places in there. So when I want to be assured that I'm a child of God and I have everlasting life, don't, I don't look within. Don't you look within. You know where I look? I look where I looked the first day I believed, right there. Because right there on that cross, it was finished. And when I look there, I get 100% sure again. I have no doubts, no question, because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on the amazing grace of Jesus. So no need for sacrificial offerings, no need for good works, and absolutely no need for uncertainty about the future. Just quickly, um, Jim wanted me to weave a little of my personal testimony. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family, um, very thankful for that heritage. Uh, I was... I actually was one of the few in my family. My brothers and I have three brothers, uh, four boys in my family. We were all altar boys. Uh, as my grandfather said, we were all born Irish and Catholic, son, and you don't change either one. Um, he, and one of them did change, for me at least. Uh, but I grew up very, uh, loved church, loved going to church, uh, enjoyed uh, being an altar boy. Uh, enjoyed particularly stations of the cross during Lent. I just loved it. But I always had this feeling in my heart like there could be, there, there ought to be something more because God was so distant and in some ways so fearful. And um, I will never forget my senior year. I had just graduated high school, uh, June of 1972, graduated high school. And for the, that summer, for a summer job, I was working on the back of a garbage truck. And my buddy that I had just graduated high school, we were, we were uh, picking up garbage and going by this particular house. They always had magazines wrapped real tightly. And I, I just happened to look at the cover. As I picked it up to throw it in the back of the this is when you wrote on the, right on the back, you know, somebody on each side of the back. I don't know why they still do that. Um, but I looked down and I saw this magazine and on the cover it said, heaven is a free gift. And I thought, huh, that sounds interesting. So I ripped that one out and threw the rest in and I started reading this article. It was written by a guy that I thought I had heard his name, but I wasn't sure who he was. It was the name was Billy Graham. And I started reading this article, and it basically talked about how eternal life was a free gift. You couldn't work for it. You couldn't earn it. But if you trusted in what Christ did on the cross for you, when you trusted in his finished work, you could have heaven as a free gift. And you know what? Honestly, guys, to this very day, I can remember thinking to myself this, these exact words, wouldn't it be wonderful if that were true? And I, I'll tell you what, honestly, I think I was that close to the kingdom. Uh, God has his purposes for everything, and sometimes we don't understand what they are, but uh, 
A couple months later, a neighbor of mine that I used to do a lot of hunting and fishing with uh, was a very devout Baptist. And uh, I came in from fishing one day, and his boat happened to be at the public dock, happened to be parked right next to mine. And I backed in, and um, I had a couple of big bluefish I had caught. We'd been out in the ocean. And he hung around as I was cleaning up my boat. He started talking to me. And he leans, I had a 1963, my first uh, first car was a 1963 Ford Econoline van. Anybody remember them? The steering wheel came right up through the floor like a bus, you know. And the steerage linkage was all, there was always something wrong. You, you, this was a vehicle you had to steer constantly because it kind of roamed, you know. And and on the motor box between the two seats, now this, is, this is probably a month to two months after I had picked that magazine up. I had reread that article a half a dozen times. And the the magazine was sitting on the motor box between the two seats. Well, it's getting dark, and he leans on my window, and it dawns on me as I'm washing the boat down. I'm thinking, I'm I'm remembering the magazines here. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I hope he doesn't see that magazine. Because I kind of knew what would happen if he did. Well, sure enough, he leans over, and he sees, he goes, oh, what's this? And he picks it up. And he says, eternal lives are free. He goes, Billy Graham. He goes, D- is this yours, Gar? Uh, yeah, I found it in the garbage. And he said, did you read it? I said, yeah, uh, yeah, I read it. And he said, oh, I'm so thankful. He goes, what did you think of it? I said, well, it's, it's really, I really liked it. I said, it was kind of neat. He said, I am, and this is what he said to me, I am so glad to hear that you found this and that you're reading this. He goes, I think God's working in your life. He said, and I, Gary, I love you as a friend, but I know, I've, I've known for a while you're on the road to hell. <laughs> and I said, and I said, well, let's just say his name was Tom. He actually was killed in a very tragic car accident just a few years later. Uh, Really a good, I mean, a a well-meaning, good-hearted guy. But listen to what he said to me. He said, I knew you were on the road to hell for two reasons. I saw you coming out of Duffy's bar, and you were riding a motorcycle. (laughs) Yeah. And you have to understand, for someone, you know, for, for... a guy like me who's you know raised Catholic knows quite a bit about God and, and even a little bit about the Bible. And I had started reading the Bible on my own. I was starting to think, maybe this really is true. Maybe it really is a free gift. But when he said I was going to hell because I'd been in a bar and I was riding a motorcycle, both of which were true, it really threw me a curve. It put me completely off base. And what it said to me was, you know, maybe this isn't a free gift. And you know what? I love the idea of the free gift, but I'm not interested in trading in my Catholic rules and regulations, and there were plenty of them, for a set of Baptist rules and regulations. I'm not interested in that. And so what happened was it made me, it put a damper on things for me, and for the next, that was when I was 18 years old. For the next eight years, roughly, he was right. I was on the road to hell, and I was working at it then for those eight years. And, but in the sovereignty of God, you know, you've heard it said that when the hound of heaven is after you, you can run, but you can't hide. In the sovereignty of God, when I was about 25, um, the Catholic church that I went to and had gone to since I was a little boy um, started a guitar mass on Saturday nights. And the gals that were drive, the driving force behind that guitar mass had all come to understand the free gift. They were all genuine believers. 
Um, and they started sharing it with me. And this one gal, Peggy, says to me, he goes, Gary, you know, you don't, it's not, it's not by works. It's a gift. It's a free gift. I said, you know, Peg, I heard that eight years ago, but I'm not so sure about that. And she said, why not? And I told her the story because she knew the guy that had said that to me, my neighbor. She knew him very well. She said, Gary, that's just wrong. She said, that's, that's legalism. That's what he, you know, a lot of Bible-believing churches, they tend to add extras onto the gospel. And it's dangerous when that happens, but it really is free. And I said, you sure, Peg? She goes, well, she gave me a Bible. And I started reading, and she said, look, I want you to read this verse. She gave me a whole list of verses she wanted me to read. And I started reading those verses over a period of time. And lo and behold, at, at uh, about six months later, age 26, uh, I flew down to Florida. Uh, I was going to go fishing with my brother and just spend some time uh, in the sun. It was like it was uh, late February, early March. Late, last day of February or last two days of February, I think, when I flew down there. This is back when Eastern Airlines was still in business. So uh, I was not a good flyer. I'm still not a good flyer. Um, but I flew from Philadelphia to Orlando International Airport. And I'll never forget when I got off the plane, which I was always very happy to do, there was a, the, the captain. You know how they often stand there and they greet you as you're, as you're getting off the plane? Well, I happened to notice that he had a, a tie tack, and it was the ichthus fish. And I thought, hmm. Well, I got off the plane and <clears throat> made a beeline, uh, as my friend had said, for a place, and I still remember the name of it, the Skyline Lounge. For the longest time, I had a book of matches that said the Skyline Lounge on it and got myself a hamburger, a gigantic hamburger and a beer. And I'm sitting there at the, uh, at the bar. And lo and behold, who comes in and sits down next to me? That pilot. And I'm looking, I'm looking at it, and I saw the tie clip again. And I don't know how I mustered the courage, but I finally said to him, I said, excuse me. I said, did you just fly the plane down from Philadelphia? He goes, yeah, I did. He said, were you on it? I said, yeah. And then it's quiet for a minute. He's ordering up, and I'm eating my hamburger. And, he's, and I said, could I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, are you a Christian? He goes, yeah, are you? I said, no, but I think I'm going to be. That's exactly what I said to him. And he said, listen, don't let anything or anybody keep you away from Jesus Christ. And basically he said, look, i got to do a turnaround on this plane, so I only got a few minutes, but let me just share something with you quick. And he told me a quick story about how he had been a fighter pilot in Vietnam. And uh, when he left to go to Vietnam, his marriage was in trouble. And by the time he got back, his marriage was basically over. But he became, while he was over there, he became a believer. And he came back and he shared it with his wife. He said, it took two years for me to convince her that I was for real. And also that it was for real. (laughs) He said, but when she came to faith, he said, we were able to put our marriage back together. He said, and now we have, we just, he said, we just have the greatest marriage in the world. He said, and Jesus Christ is the only reason for living. He's the reason for living. He said, do me a favor. I got to go. Don't let anything keep you away from Jesus Christ. And guess what he did? He handed me a New Testament. Uh, Peggy, my friend, had given me one about six months before, which I had been reading. I get my rent-a-car and drive to the Days Inn uh, at Orlando International Airport in Florida. The main road that goes past the airport is McCoy Road. So I went down McCoy Road about 
I'd say it was about a mile and a half, and there was a Days Inn there. I check into the Days Inn, and I walk into the, the motel room, and on the nightstand between the bed is a little paperback, good news for modern man, and on the front of the Bible it says, keep this Bible as a gift from Days Inn. And I'm thinking, good gosh, even the motel's giving me a Bible, you know? And understand, guys, what's going on in the back of my mind is, is this free gift thing, is it too good to be true or is it too good not to be true? I still wasn't sure. So I just grabbed this paperback Bible and I sat down on the side of the bed and I just started reading it. I opened it up and started reading it. And in the sovereignty of God, I opened up to Romans chapter 14. You know... It's weird. How does anybody come to faith reading Romans chapter 14? If you know the chapter, it talks about doubtful things. Paul is talking to the uh, Roman believers about how, you know, some people believe that uh, meat that's been sacrificed to idols is unclean because it's been sacrificed to an idol. So therefore, you, you can't eat that. It's defiled. And Paul said, but other believers who know there's no such thing as an idol, <laughs> you know, they look at it. This is cheap meat because on the marketplace it would probably sell for a quarter of the price of the regular stuff. So they think, here's the greatest deal in the world, right? If you're a good shopper, you buy the meat that was sacrificed to the idols and you enjoy it. And Paul said, you know who's wrong? Neither one. Neither one. If your conscience will not allow you to eat that meat that was sacrificed to idols, if you can't eat it in faith, then leave it alone. If you know there's no such thing as an idol and you know there's nothing wrong with eating that meat, then enjoy, manja. But, but don't judge your brother over doubtful things. Don't do what my Baptist friend did. Don't legislate beyond what the Bible does. And he talks about eating meat and the same thing, drinking wine. Or I might add beer. But listen, guys, it spoke to my heart. God spoke to my heart so vividly. I was crying as I finally realized. You know what I remember? I remember having to move because it was a paperback Bible. I remember having to move it because I was reading it like this. I had to move it like this because I was soaking it. I was bawling. The last two verses of Romans chapter 14 in the Good News Bible say this. And this is what made it all click for me. Keep what you believe about these matters then between yourself and God. Happy is the man who does not feel condemned in his heart when he does what he knows is right. And what that said to me translated into my Catholic background and into what had been happening in my life over the last eight years was, listen, Gary, it really is free. It really is a gift like you've been reading and like Peggy and the girls have been telling you. It really is a free gift. But if you get out of line, if you get, if you get involved with something you shouldn't be involved with, I'll let you know. My spirit, my spirit is going to be living within you. And, you know, and God's the best parent in the world. As I tell people, He doesn't let His kids run wild. God disciplines His kids, unlike some of us. And if you get into anything you shouldn't be into, I'll let you know. Whatever, happy is the man who does not feel condemned what he does in his heart. 
when he, when, happy is man who does not feel condemned in his heart when he does what he knows is right, but, and this is the last verse, but if he, but if he eats or drinks, not from faith, if he doubts when he eats or drinks, he sins, because anything that is not of faith is sin. So don't judge your brother. Don't look down your nose at your brother. And guys, that's when the light went on for me. And that's why I identify so much with Luther's words. When Luther, who also was obviously very Roman Catholic, when he, and he, he became a believer reading the book of Romans. And when he did, he said, I felt as if the gates of heaven had been flung open to me. Suddenly, the Bible took on a whole new meaning for me. And whereas before I had been in fear and in dread of the righteousness of God, now the righteousness of God became something inexpressibly sweet. I, I just quit running about three or four years ago because I'm trying to preserve what's left of my knees for skiing. Uh, we're avid skiers. It's another reason why we're out here. And, um, but back then I, would, I was a very, very avid runner in my 20s and 30s. I put my running shoes on and I, and I went running down McCoy Road back toward the airport. And all I can tell you is I felt like I was running about that far off the ground. I didn't even know what had happened to me yet. But I'm running and the planes, I'm going right over this approach pattern and I, and I felt like the planes were so low, I almost felt like I could jump up and grab the landing gear. And I just remember this, and not everybody gets this. You know, our faith... We walk by faith, not by sight. And God doesn't do this in everybody's experience. But I had this euphoric feeling. The following week, I was back in New Jersey, and the gal Peggy, the one that you know, had said to me, you know, here's the here's Bible, I want you to read these verses. She said, listen, Kara, there's an evangelist uh, up in Asbury Park, and I want, you, I want you, would you go? I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. And I went, and they had a guy there who gave a beautiful, clear gospel presentation, and then he invited people to come forward. And she said, Gary, you've been so close for so long. She said, I'll go up with you if you want to go. And I said, well, I'll go up with you if you want, Peg. I said, but I've been sitting here listening, and I'm already a Christian. She said, when did this happen? <laughs> I said, well, I was trying to sort that out too. I said, as far as I can tell, it happened about a week ago in the Days Inn in Orlando, Florida. Guys, that was March 1st, 1980. And let me just tell you this. That was the day I understood the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if God, I tell people all the time, if God never did another thing for me for the rest of my life, I would still want to serve Him somehow with my life. It redirected the entire course of my life. I was in road construction and making good money at it. But I knew shortly after my conversion that somehow God wanted to use me in full-time vocational ministry. I ended up starting seminary in my 30s. Uh, met my wife, my wonderful wife there. Uh, got three great kids and have spent the last 16 years uh, telling people about the finished work of Jesus Christ. I guess I, um, I, guess I have a closing question for you. That's one thing that Jim does quite a bit, but I, so I wanted to do it too. Do you, do you understand the finished work of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ? As Todd and the worship team come and um, I've asked them if we could close with, uh, I love Amazing Grace, but I particularly love Chris Tomlin's version of Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. 
I've been set free. My God, my Savior has rescued me. And there's no need for sacrificial offerings anymore. There's no need for good works in terms of trying to earn my way because it's already been paid in full. And there's no need for any uncertainty about my eternal destiny. Do you understand the finished work of Jesus Christ? If you do, why don't you write Pastor Jim just one or two lines this week? Maybe in an email, uh, maybe in a letter, whatever. Nobody writes letters anymore. I guess maybe in an email. Um, And just tell him how you came to understand the finished work of Jesus Christ.